Welcome to the Natural Super Kids Podcast, where you will discover practical strategies to inspire you to boost the health and nutrition of your kids. I'm Jessica Donovan, a qualified naturopath specializing in kids' health, and I want to make it as easy as possible for you to raise healthy and happy kids. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Natural Super Kids podcast. I'm so excited that you are joining me today for this chat about managing tricky behaviors in children. I think we can all do with some some tips and tricks and information about this. And joining me on the podcast today is the amazing Ashley Warner from Raising Humans Kind. Ashley is a psychologist. She's a gentle parenting advocate and she is a mum of two. So we talk about all things behaviour. She shares some of the key things that are important to know about our kids' behaviour. She tells us more about her three steps to managing tricky behavior in kids, which is really practical, some real gold in there. Um, And we just have a great chat about behavior in kids and managing it in a really respectful way that doesn't damage attachment. Uh, So I'm thrilled to introduce you to Ashley. Welcome to the podcast, Ashley. Thanks for having me here, Jessica. I'm excited to chat with you and talk about all of these things. Yes, so I'm Ashley. I am a family psychologist and so I've been working as a psychologist for about a bit over a decade now. And I've got two boys and once when I had my eldest son, who's four now, I just decided that I didn't really want to work um, in, you know, I was working in trauma with kids who had been, had some pretty significant trauma and I was doing some play therapy and some family therapy and I just felt like I wanted to be at home more with my babies and Um, I kind of thought, gosh, you know what I want to do? I really just want to teach people about respectful parenting. (laughs) And then now I've created this way that I get to do that, which is just an absolute joy. So um, now I work with families all over the world and doing consultations and parenting work with them to support them uh, on kind of implementing some more respectful parenting strategies and dealing with challenging behaviours in a more respectful, attachment-focused way. I love that. And similar story to me. Like I didn't want to kind of, you know, uh, when I had babies myself, I wanted to be at home more and didn't want to kind of be tied to that clinical practice. Um, and yeah, so started started working online as well. So similarities there. Um, yes. <laughs> so tell us, let's get started by maybe you explaining or, or telling other parents listening some of the key things that might be helpful for them to know about our kids' behaviour? I know that's a huge question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love these podcast questions that are just like <laughs> huge. Yeah. Okay, I'll try and <laughs> I'll try and summarise it a little bit. So I guess what I talk to parents about in terms of behaviour is that behaviour is the symptom. 
So it's the thing that we see on the surface and it's never the cause or the issue that we want to deal with. So when you look at a behaviour, it's important to look at the behaviour as like a red flag. Okay, so now I'm seeing hitting or now I'm seeing pushing or uh, pushback or whatever it is that you're seeing, that is like the tip of the iceberg. And then where we really want to go and what we really want to understand is the cause, the why of that. So why is that happening? And that's where we want to spend our attention and our energy and our time as parents because if we just focus on the behaviour, so the surface thing, let's say it's the hitting, then it's just going to pop up somewhere else. So if the hitting is being... um, caused by frustration if we don't actually deal with the frustration but we manage to stop the hitting it's just going to pop out somewhere else and then we're just playing that like you know whacking on top of symptoms type of issue and it just doesn't get us anywhere so I think probably the most important thing to understand about behavior is that it is a symptom and this this deviates a lot from most of us are pretty kind of conditioned to believe a very behaviorist approach to childhood and a very the behaviorist approach has become over the last you know 50 or 60 years really solidified in our culture and so we tend to see this idea of what becomes before and what comes after the behavior as where we want to work and that's actually not the case and the more that we find out about it through neuroscience is the more we understand that emotions tend to drive behavior and there's always a cause and dealing with the emotions and the cause underneath is going to be a lot more beneficial for us as families. Yes, I love that explanation. Um, and I think even for those of us who, you know, have already heard this sort of thing or aware of it or read it or whatever, um, it's so good to be reminded of it because mm. it's so easy to forget that. <laughs> it is, isn't it? And I think, you know, the thing that we don't tend to like we do tend to forget is the majority of behavior is simply a child's attempt at regulating the nervous system. So even if it is the pushing or the shoving or the fidgeting around, it's them trying to edit their attempt to try and regulate the discomfort inside of themselves. And when we can remember that and we can see our, like we can have our lens with that in mind, we can often be less reactive and less frustrated because we can see that they're just trying to manage that discomfort. Yes. And as a mum of, you know, new teenagers, I have a 14 year old. <laughs> this is so reassuring to, to mm. remember. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that's it. It's, and it's the same for everybody. It doesn't matter if you're two, 14 or 40. Often what we do is an attempt to, to regulate the distress within ourselves. Yes. Thank you. All right. So tell us more about your approach to discipline that doesn't damage attachment, because I know you're big on that. Yes, I am. So attachment is kind of the, you know, let me just clarify that attachment theory is not the same as attachment parenting. So I'm not necessarily talking about all the things that often get, you know, thrown into attachment parenting, but attachment science and attachment theory tells us that children want to be led by us. They want to look up to, they want to be similar to us. They want to take direction from us when they're strongly and deeply attached to us. And if we mess with that, if we kind of engage in discipline techniques that really like damage that attachment, then we're really damaging the very thing that helps our children mature. And it's kind of like a little dangerous game we're playing. And I think that in mainstream 
kind of parenting advice, we often get suggested to do these things that actually damage that attachment. So, for example, consequences, like I'm going to take, you know, you've done something wrong, therefore I'm going to take away your iPad. It's really hard for a young child to want to depend on an adult who is looking around to try and find something that they love and remove it when they make a mistake. And if we don't have our children wanting to depend on us, then they're not going to deepen that attachment to us and then they're not going to want to follow our direction, follow our lead, be similar to us. And that then become, it just becomes really hard to parent them. Um, so I guess what I talk about is just finding ways to manage challenging behaviour without damaging, damaging that relationship. And so instead of doing things like using consequences, it really is coming back to dealing with the cause of behaviour. So coming back to a lot of the work that I do in order to manage challenging behaviours is to do a lot of emotional regulation work. Because as I just said before, it like often the challenging behaviour is just the kid's attempt to regulate the distress. So if we can look underneath the behaviour and try and find out what the emotion is, so let's say, for example, it's frustration. So a child's hitting because they're frustrated. A frustration is the emotion that is uh, something in my life is not working the way I want it to. So something's not happening in the way that I want it to. Now, for kids, that's, that's so many different things. But when we, to, in order to deal with the energy of frustration, it, it will come out in an attempt to change something, right? So a child's frustrated. They're trying to, let's say, change your mind. They want to have that last cookie and you've said no. So they might be like flailing and hitting and kicking. They're frustrated. They're trying to change your mind. Once they get to the point where they've accepted that your no is a real no, what we ideally want is children then to find their sadness and their tears about that. And when they can release the sadness and tears out of their body, their brain actually moves into more of an acceptance state and that energy, that state shifts. And so then we get a calmer, more connected child. So one of the very one of the most important ways that I deal with aggression in my work was helping a child find their tears of sadness. And when we can facilitate that process as parents, we can help our kids regulate their nervous systems and come back into balance. And when kids' nervous systems are back in balance, that's when you'll find much more connected, cooperative behaviour. Wow, that is really, yeah, really powerful. And I think um, I think probably we, at our generation was parented, you know, not to show the emotion. So that is often our natural kind of tendency, isn't it? You know, that like as, as parents, because that's the way that we've been parented. Well, many of us have anyway, but emotion is a good thing when it comes to, you know, discipline and, um, and managing kids' behavior. It is exactly right. And I think this is the misunderstanding that we have from because of the way that, you know, the behaviourist model and things like that is, is that we think kids who cry over not getting the cookie that they wanted or kids who find their tears because they're disappointed they lost a game, we see that as weak. And we see that as, oh, when we don't have a resilient child when it's the exact opposite. The child who can find their tears of sadness and tap into that vulnerability is going to be less aggressive and less attacking and actually is going to be the very kid who grows up and can manage difficult emotions and difficult life experiences. So it's 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 often counterintuitive for us because we've been so deeply conditioned to think that those children are, yeah, like I said, weak, when actually we really want to be facilitating that process because it's it's one of the best natural ways that we have to rebalance kids and and deal with challenging behavior. 
Yeah, I love that. And that's so powerful. And I'm guessing, I think we, we, we've come a long way, but I'm I'm also thinking as you're talking, like, you know, that that is especially true for boys still, I think, you know, the you know, don't cry and um, all of that sort of thing. But we want to celebrate and actually, you know, th- th- celebrate that emotion. Exactly. And even like, even draw it out, like, even to the point where we're, you know, I say this to parents all the time, they'll come and they'll say to me like, oh, my child won't go to bed or my child's, you know, hitting their sibling. Okay, well, how often have they found, like how recently and how often are they finding those tears of sadness? How often are they crying about the things that they can't change? Oh, no, never. They're just stuck in mad. Okay, so next time something comes up that's like difficult for them or sad for them but they can't change, I want you to draw those tears out really try and press on that sadness, really try and actually draw it out of them and see the more tears you can get. And every single time when a parent's able to do that, they'll come back and say, oh my gosh, she's sleeping again. (laughs) Oh my gosh, he stopped being so aggressive. Because it's actually, sometimes we need to really facilitate that process and we really need to draw those tears out so that they can really have that opportunity to reset. Yeah, it's the release. I mean, I think any of us listening know, you know, how good it can feel after a good cry. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's so it's the same for our kids. I love that. Thank you for sharing. So, can you maybe talk us through, like, in a practical sense? Um, I think you've got like a three-step um, process to managing tricky behaviour in kids. Yes. So, what often happens is that parents will get one point and they'll be like, oh, I'm holding really good boundaries, but the behavior is still happening. Or I'm not using consequences anymore, but now I don't know how to deal with this. So I've kind of broken it down for parents to say that there's almost like three steps. So the first step is the here and now. So what do we do in the moment? This is where we need to hold the boundary and keep everybody safe. So if our child's hitting, for example, or doing something that's inappropriate, then it's our job to step in. And if we're talking about kids under six or seven, mostly our job is to step in physically. So it might be to stop a child physically hitting. We might need to physically pick them up and pull them away or um, whatever it is. It it often, it requires a physical holding of that boundary, obviously done with respect and compassion. But what's important for parents to understand is that this is not verbal. We're not saying, can you please stop hitting? (laughs) We're actually physically stepping in and stopping that from happening. So the first step is holding the boundary in the here and now. Um, And that, but what's really important for parents to understand, because often they start to follow respectful parenting and understand this idea of boundaries, but the boundary won't stop the behavior from happening again, because the boundary hasn't actually dealt with the cause of the behavior. So the boundary deals with the here and now. It steps in and says, I'm the parent and I'm going to keep everybody safe. That's my job. But it doesn't actually deal with the cause. So then step two is we need to look at, well, what's underneath that behavior? Why is it happening? And how can I deal with the cause? So let's say, for example, that it's an older um, sibling hitting a new baby for example. So we might, the first step would be, we might need to step in and stop that from happening. But then the second step, we might need to think, oh, okay, maybe that child's feeling a bit out of place. Maybe that child's feeling like their place in the family is a little bit lost. Maybe that child needs a little bit more connection. Maybe they're feeling like the baby's getting too much connection. So next time 
you know, I breastfeed instead of trying to send the child away and distract them by giving them some toys to play with. I'm going to bring the child onto my knee and I'm going to read the child some books while I'm feeding the baby. So we're starting to deal with the cause of the hitting rather than just stopping the hitting in the moment. So that would be the step two is to deal with that that cause of the behavior. So it might be emotional regulation. It might be connection. Um, it might be hunger, right? Sometimes sometimes kids are simply hungry and so they act out. And so us dealing with the cause is making sure that they've had enough to eat. Yeah, love that. Yeah, but I, I know personally I find, you know, more when there's challenging behavior with kids, more connection almost mm. always works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, connection or fresh air. Mm. yes 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 fresh air too that's a good one (laughs) fresh air um yes so connection connection is massive I think it's one of one of the bigger drivers of of challenging behavior is a lack of connection absolutely so that's number two that's kind of dealing with the cause and then the third step is then thinking about whether or not there needs to be a lesson so often Again, we think, okay, well, if I'm not going to use rewards and consequences, I need to teach my child a lesson. And there's been some really wonderful reframes of discipline. Like I know Dan Siegel has talked about um, reframing the word discipline to mean to teach, which is a wonderful uh, reframe. But I think the, the downside of that is that parents are misunderstanding that and thinking that they need to teach every single time there's a challenging behavior. And so they think, oh, where's the lesson here? How do I teach the lesson? And so often I'll hear parents, you know, having these really long conversations with their two-year-old or their four-year-old and they're trying to explain something or ask them not to do it again or explain why it hurts. And really the lesson just isn't that helpful in that moment. So the lesson is best taught when the emotion is low and the connection is high. And that's never really in an incident. So we have the incident, which is, you know, we need to hold the boundary. Then we want to deal with the cause. And then we want to come back later and and if it feels appropriate, have a lesson, which for some children might be six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours later. It's rarely, rarely in the incident. And then the other thing I say to parents too is that sometimes the lesson's not even for the kids, it's for us. Sometimes the person who needs to learn the lesson is the parent and it's it's just the lesson that says, okay, my child isn't capable of this in this season of life. My child is only capable of one-hour play dates or my child can't be in the sandpit when he hasn't napped or my child actually can't be crawling around on the floor with their baby sibling in the afternoon. So sometimes the lesson is figuring out where our child's capabilities are in this season of life and accepting that and adjusting our parenting according to that. So often the lesson is really for us and not for them. Yes, I love that. I think that'll be a big realization for lots of parents. And the fact that we don't always have to have a lesson. I think that no. takes the pressure off as well. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> if you can deal with the cause of the behavior and hold the boundary, that's often enough, right? Because maturity is going to deal with most of this. If we can maintain our our relationship with our kids and we can hold boundaries and we can support their emotional regulation, like maturity does so much of it. We just have to wait. Yeah. Yeah. So just a couple of questions on, on what you shared there. You said, you know, for, with, with the holding the boundary for kids sort of under six or seven, it almost always requires our sort of physical presence to, um, to hold that boundary. What about for older kids? Cause this is something that I kind of struggle with now. My kids are older, like how, without stepping in physically, like, is there, do you have any tips in that regard? 
I probably need an example. I guess it would depend on like, you know, kind of what's happening. Um, do you want to give me an example? Well, yeah, can- say so my my 14-year-old can be quite physical, particularly like if he's been out with his mates and he comes home and he, you know, he might be a bit rough with his sister. She's 12. So, um, but, you know, he's bigger than me now. So mm-hmm. <laughs> me, not, mm-hmm. not that he's, you know, aggressive or angry or anything like that, but it, it, now that he's getting bigger, it doesn't sort of seem appropriate to kind of step in physically. Is that a, is that yeah. of an example? Yeah. I guess, I guess what I'm thinking, what comes to mind there is then the importance of redirecting that energy. So I think sometimes we think we have to come in and stop it. But if you think about a child who's got, like, he's just come back, he's got all this beaming energy, what's a safe redirection for him to get that out? And so maybe it's just as a parent saying, look, I can't let you play with your sister right now because that doesn't seem safe. Let's go and throw the basketball together or let's go and whatever it is. But I think if we come back to dealing with the cause, if we just try and stop him from playing with his sister, which he's as it might be his attempt to release some of that extra energy, then he needs to be redirected in a safe way to do it rather than just stopping it. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, that's, a, that's a perfect um, answer. I'm just thinking, yeah, I'm actually doing the right thing there because yeah, that perfect. is, you know, we'll often go out and, and do some basketball or um, do a bit of rough play, but even like, you know, rough playing with him now. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a dangerous You're really sport. working at it. <laughs> Yes. Um, I'll get it, I'll get his dad onto that job. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the other question that came up, like, um, was dealing with that underlying, you know, the cause of the behaviour. Um, what if we're, we're not sure what the cause of the behaviour is? Mm. I think I get this question a lot and I think what I say to parents is really trust yourself because I do think you do not. And you're not going to always get it right. Like I don't always get it right. But every single time I have a consultation with families, not every single time, but the majority of the time, it's the parents that come up with the answer. Once we actually have the space to sit aside and go, oh, this, this behavior is like just popping up and popping up. Once I actually sit down with families and we spend, you know, half an hour, an hour talking about it, they go, oh, it's X. And it it's rarely comes from me. So what I say to parents first is if you actually just dedicate some time, whether you're talking to a partner or a friend or journaling in the evenings, if you set aside some time to really think it through, majority of the time you'll come up with the answer yourself because as the parent you do know your child best. Um, but then I would say it doesn't really matter if we exactly know. We're never going to know 100% of the time. We will get it wrong. I'm a psychologist. I still get to the point of the end of the day and say to my husband, wow, like why is he doing that? <laughs> it, you know, sometimes we're not going to know and we just do our best or we just focus on, I think there's always things we can come back to like emotional regulation and connection. If we're not really sure where it's coming from, we can just really go, okay, has my child had their tears lately? Have they moved enough energy? Are they getting enough exercise? Are they getting enough connection? Um, and I think when we kind of come back to those three things, we can kind of deal with a lot of a lot of challenging behaviours. 
Yeah, definitely. I agree. And I think that's a really good point to trust ourselves as parents. You know, we're in that information age where we can, you know, try and Google or read a book or to find the answer externally. But yeah, just sitting with ourselves, we, you know, the answer will will come up. So it will. And I think, I think it's a real problem. Like, obviously I'm a psychologist and I share information on Instagram. So I'm definitely (laughs) um, perpetuating that. But I do think it's a little bit of a problem with so much information because we look outside of ourselves too much and we lose trust of our intuition. And the thing about attachment is we need to be in that alpha role. So we need to be in the one that's leading. And if we're always looking up and trying to seek information from other people, then it's really hard for us to be the leader. So there's this really important, delicate balance where we want to shift what we know and we want to shift what we the way we were treated and and the last generation's kind of attempt at parenting but not to the point where we're we're losing touch with our own intuition and our own knowledge of our own kids because ultimately as the parents we do know our kids best yeah definitely i agree oh so much great information um and i'm sure we could we could chat for for a lot longer but i know you've got you know you've got a a variety of different resources that will be helpful for parents so can you tell our listeners a bit more about where they can find you and what you offer Sure. So I have the Raising Humans Kind podcast, which has just had one series where I kind of answered, I interviewed uh, seven different people answering the questions, if we're going to drop rewards and consequences, what do we do instead? So in each interview, I go through a different element of conscious discipline that you can kind of try at home. Um, Raising Humans Kind is where I am at Instagram and I share lots of stuff there. Right now for this kind of month, I'm sharing lots of stuff about highly sensitive kids. And I also do, I have a membership. So if you've kind of got a kid who, where you're feeling like things are a little bit stuck and you're wanting a little bit more handholding and a little bit more support around implementing respectful parenting, uh, that's the Raising Humans Collective. And I also do parent consultations as well. So that's where you can find me. Lovely. You've got a lot going on and we'll make sure we link to all of those things in the show notes. And I love your Instagram because I think it's really you know, informative and educational and inspiring. So that's a great place for people to head. And I can't wait to listen to your podcast too. (laughs) Thanks, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining us and I'm sure we'll talk soon. Perfect. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Head on over to our website, naturalsuperkids.com for the show notes for this episode, as well as a whole heap of inspiration to help you raise healthy and happy kids. I'll see you next week.